The reading can be found on page 1174. It comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its decrees and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Good, and let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray as we look at your word this morning that you might grant us uh, understanding through the illuminating work of your spirit, that we might uh, understand the truth and apply it to our life for our great reassurance, we pray. Amen. Well, do you remember the time when you first knew that God was for real? and that Jesus Christ wanted to break into your life, and you realised that he was personal, and that you knew that you were in the wrong with the pair of them, and that you needed to get that sorted out, you needed to return to God in repentance, you needed to trust that the Lord Jesus' death on the cross for your sins meant that they could be forgiven, and the way was opened for you to respond to the call of Christ, inviting him into your life. Do you remember that time? Do you recall it? How old were you? When was it? It may have been sudden. It may have been a real eye-opening moment. Or it may have been a long, gradual journey over time. Or more likely, it's a mixture of both. Well, that was the Holy Spirit causing you to be born again, to be regenerated. He had been at work through what you were reading in the scriptures or in Christian literature, or maybe your engagement with Christian friends or listening to Christian talks. And it was as you thought about these things and how they applied to your life. He was at work directing you to the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone can make sense of life and can connect us with God, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that community of love that wants us to be part of them. 
So as you read the scriptures, the Holy Spirit was illuminating your mind, gradually convincing you of the truth, and then convicting you of your own sin in rebelling against God, and then revealing to you the way of salvation through trusting in the merits of Christ's death on the cross for your sins. And then one day, as C.S. Lewis memorably puts it when writing about his own conversion, he puts it, he says, you gave in, you surrendered to Christ. And today we're looking at the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing about this new birth. Birth and rebirth, both of them are a result of the operation of the Holy Spirit. You look in Genesis 1, you see the Spirit at work in creating the universe in the first place. So just as nothing can live biologically apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, so too can no one come alive to God apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus makes that quite plain in his narrative, his discussion with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And this is what he said about the Holy Spirit. I tell you the truth, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To be born again is to experience a second genesis. It is a new beginning, a fresh start in life. When something is started, we say it is generate. And when it is started again, we say it's regenerate. Regeneration by the Holy Spirit is change. It's a radical change into a new kind of being. It's not that we as human beings become divine beings. No, it's, it's that we as spiritually dead human beings come to be spiritually alive human beings. Spiritually dead people, Jesus says, are incapable of seeing the kingdom of God. It's invisible to them. Not because the kingdom itself is invisible, but just simply because being spiritually dead, they are also spiritually blind. And in using the word unless, in speaking to Nicodemus, Jesus is stating what we call a necessary condition. A necessary condition is an absolute prerequisite for a desired result to take place. We cannot, for example, have fire without the presence of oxygen because oxygen is a necessary condition for fire. Unless a person is generate, born again, rather regenerate and born again, then he's not a Christian. Without regeneration, a person can neither see the kingdom of God nor enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is puzzled. He asks, how can one enter into his mother's womb a second time? Well, what Nicodemus has failed to do is to distinguish between biological birth and spiritual birth. He didn't differentiate between flesh and the spirit. And Jesus answered his bewilderment by saying, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. 
And again, Jesus prefaces his words by saying, I tell you the truth. Or you could say, most assuredly. He's being very emphatic. He's saying regeneration is necessary for seeing and entering the kingdom of God. The word cannot that he uses is also crucial to his teaching. It's a negative word and it deals with ability and possibility. Without regeneration, he's saying, no one is able to enter the kingdom of God. There are no exceptions. It's impossible without rebirth. No one is born a Christian. No one is born biologically into the kingdom of God. Our first birth is one that is of the flesh, because flesh begets flesh. It cannot, though, produce spirit. We need the spirit for a new birth to take place. And then Jesus says that you must be born again. And must is a very strong word. It means it is necessary. It's the same word that Jesus used about his mission to suffer and to die for our sins when he said the Son of Man must. Again, he's very emphatic about the necessity for a new birth. And the passage we've had read this morning explains it for us. However, if you only heard the first three verses, then you'd be quite depressed, full of despair, possibly even angry. But verse 4 has this. It opens with, but God, perhaps the most encouraging two words in the Bible. And we have opened before us the most glorious solution. So let's have a look at Ephesians 2 together. And we start with how we are, what we are by nature in the first three verses. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. Now remember, this isn't a, a picture of the real baddies in existence. It is a picture of everybody. It is how fallen nature is. It's how we all start off in life. And in case you've been a Christian for a long time and suffer from amnesia, verse 3b says, Let, like the rest, we were. It's everyone. It isn't just, you know, we're not talking about the Adolf Hitlers of existence. And there are three features of the natural human condition that are spelt out here in three verses. And the three features are that we are dead. We've as much spiritual life as a corpse has physical life. We're dead, not simply critically ill. Then we read in verse 2 that we were trapped. We can't get out of this way of life. There is no chance of escape. And that we were objects of God's wrath, verse 3. We're on the wrong side of God. We're condemned by him. Now you can see why I said if you just read the first three verses, you would be either angry or despairing. So the, the natural human condition is that we're dead, dead in our in your transgressions and sins. And transgressions, well, they mean 
making a wrong move, crossing a forbidden boundary, deviating from the right path. You know, like aiming to get to one particular destination and somehow or other you get lost and you end up in another one. I can remember once, going to a, when I was a student, going to a church in Guildford and uh, just for the day with three of my mates and um, the service went on for quite a while and we were worried in case we missed the train so we had to leave. Um, we rushed to the railway station, jumped on the train, sat there quite content. Half an hour later, the, uh, the, 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 the guard came along, wanted the tickets. We said, oh, what time does this get into Oxford? He said, it's going to Margate. <laughs> yeah, experience. That's what transgressions are, deviating from the right path. And sins are falling short of a standard. You know, I can always remember the, the shock I had at being pointed out to me on my first driving test that, you know, I had apparently made three mistakes. When he outlined what they were, I thought, yeah, fair enough. I didn't let the ambulance with its red light go, etc., going past. And the, the lady did wobble on the bike as I went past, etc. But, you know, you fail. That's what sins are. So, in these two words, we have the errors of commission and the errors of omission. So, before God, who sets the standard and lays out the route for life, we are both rebels because we go our own way, and we are failures because we fall short. And that being the case, we are dead, because in God's terms, eternal life is about having a living relationship with him, the living God. So if we don't have a living relationship with the living God, we are dead. And the strange thing is that we are, without God, the living dead. We're physically alive, but spiritually dead. We may have the vigorous body of an athlete, or the sharp mind of a lawyer, or the vivacious personality of a film star, and yet in the sphere that really matters, which is not the body, nor the mind, nor the personality, but the soul, we have no life. And it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy that people who were created by God and for God should be living without God. Next we read that we were trapped. Our walk, our way of life, the way we lived was such that we're in bondage to forces beyond our control. And these forces are described as the ways of the world, by which it means that the world is running without reference to God. It's what we call secularism. It's a way that repudiates the existence of God. It's a way that rejects his moral absolutes. It's a way that misses out on all that he has to offer, preferring instead to just drift along, primarily focused on the now and material prosperity. Next, there is the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Well, that's the devil. There is an intelligent but malevolent evil mind at work. He's out to keep us in the dark. And one way he does that, by discouraging us from thinking. C.S. Lewis in the screw tape letters, their imaginary letters from a senior to a junior devil, um, illustrates it very well. And it's quite an easy read and a good read for a holiday. 
And then there are gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. The fallen self is self-centered rather than God-centered. So many of the God-given good things in life, like food and wine and sleep and sex, get perverted into gluttony, drunkenness, laziness and lust. But this self-centered orientation affects the mind as well as the body. We suffer from intellectual pride. We think we know better than God. We suffer from false ambition. We use our God-given talents for our own benefit and not for the benefit of him and his purposes. We reject known truth and we do our own thing. And we suffer malicious thoughts such as an unforgiving spirit. So with the world, in other words, the prevailing secular culture, our fallen human nature twisted by self-centeredness, and with the devil actively capitalizing on both, we find ourselves trapped, as hooked as a junkie, and at the same time knowingly and voluntarily still rebelling against God's authority. So not surprisingly, we find God's verdict to be an unpleasant one, condemnation. The apostle writes, like the rest, we were, nature by, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now, of course, the idea that human beings are the object of God's wrath really does get the revisionist clergy going. They hate the notion they won't sing the hymn in Christ alone. Or if they do, they'll make sure that the words get amended on the song sheet beforehand. They won't sing the wrath of God was satisfied because it doesn't correspond to the God that they believe in. Well, you might question whether it's the Christian God that they have in mind. Now, if their idea of a wrathful God is a kind of divine Victor Meldrew, some old boy throwing a wobbler at people who are not doing what he wants, then, of course, we have every sympathy. But that's not the biblical picture of God at all. God's wrath is simply his divine reaction to evil. And since he always reacts the same way to evil, his wrath is never arbitrary or capricious. It's entirely predictable. It's never based on whether he's in a good mood or not. Sometimes people say, how can God be a God of wrath and be a God of love? As if he's some kind of benign old Father Christmas who never gets cross. But the Apostle Paul doesn't seem to have any problem in combining the fact that on the one hand, in God's character, that he is a God of righteousness and justice and therefore of wrath against things which are unrighteous and unjust, and on the other hand, that he is a God of love and mercy. Because actually in the following verses, he manages to combine both love and mercy with what he's just said here about being objects of God's wrath. The real God, then, is neither a grumpy old man who's permanently in a bad mood with everyone, nor is he some kind of benign old buffer who smiles wimpishly at everyone. The real God reacts against rebellious people who knowingly and willfully do wrong. 
Well, we might ask, how have we come to be like this? And the apostle says, by nature. Humanists think we're born in a state of innocency and that we can either do good or evil. If that were the case, you'd probably expect a 50-50 outcome. Half turn out okay and half of them don't. But we look in vain for any kind of communities of super saints. They don't exist. According to the Bible, human beings went wrong at the very beginning. They were created in paradise in a state of innocence, but they rejected God's partnership and authority and went off freelance. And as a consequence, all of us who follow are born into that kind of world, and that is our default orientation, adrift from God and away from him. So we start in the wrong, and there we would stay unless God does something about it. It's a pretty bleak situation, the apostle paints, isn't it? Born into and subsequently come to live out. We're outside of Christ as human beings, but we're dead spiritually because of our trespasses and sins, enslaved by the forces of the world, the flesh and the devil, and condemned under God's wrath. And it's into that bleakness we read verse 4, but God, he has taken the initiative to reverse our situation. The theologian R.C. Sproul writes, this tiny conjunction shifts the mood of the entire passage. It is the link between the natural and the supernatural, between degeneration and regeneration. Now let's see what God has done and why he's done it and how he's done it. Well, what's he's done? We read, we know in the first three verses that we were objects of God's wrath, but we read here, but God, out of his great love for us, had mercy on us, verse 4. We know we were dead, but we read verse 5, God made us alive with Christ. We know that we were trapped like slaves in a situation of dishonour and powerlessness, but we read, but God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, verse 6. In other words, in a position of honour and power, a place where we are accepted by God. What he's saying is that what happened to Christ physically and spiritually at his resurrection and ascension, namely that he was made alive, raised, and placed at God's right hand, that what has happened to Christ physically and spiritually has now happened to us spiritually and will one day happen physically when we're in a new heaven and a new earth with a new tangible existence. You see why we listen, why we need to listen to the end, to get the full balanced picture. We have to see what we are by nature and then what we are by grace. And why did he do it? Well, he acted out of mercy, verse 4. Love, verse 4. Grace or unmerited favour. And we don't deserve it, verses 5 and 8. And kindness. And that rescue originated in his character. 
And it also revealed to us something of himself. In Ephesians 1.19, we'd read that he demonstrated his immeasurable great power in raising Christ from the dead. But here in verse 7, we read that he brought us to life in order to show his incomparable riches of his grace. In other words, we get a sort of four, we get we get some insight into it now, but at the end of time, when Christ returns, everyone who has ever lived will see just how kind and loving and merciful he has been to a whole lot of people who by their track record didn't deserve it. And how is it achieved? Verse 8, for it's by grace that you've been saved through faith and not from yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Grace is God's free, unmerited mercy. Salvation is forgiveness, deliverance from death, slavery and wrath, the complete new life there that there is in Christ Jesus. And faith is simply simple trust. And notice it says you have been saved. It's a present salvation. It's not that you shall be or you may be. It's, it's you have been. Paul thinks you can know whether you've been saved or not. So I have to put it to you, do you know that? It's a present salvation by grace. You can only have such an assurance of salvation if it is based on grace. If it's based on anything that you have to do, some kind of good works or contribution, then when you come to the end of your life, that's at the point at which you'll discover whether the scales have tipped in your favour or not. If it's based on anything that you have to do. If it's based on what God has done for you, and you're just claiming what he promises, then you can have assurance now. And it's present salvation by grace, and it's through faith. In other words, it's not obtained by these good works, by clocking up points. It's, if it's gained in that way, it would be a reward. No, it's gained by trusting in what Christ has done for us, by faith, by trusting that what he's done works trusting by what he says we have claimed and he will deliver on. Our present salvation by grace through faith is not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. What the Apostle Paul teaches is that faith through which we're saved is a faith that comes to us by grace. Faith is something we exercise by ourselves and in ourselves, but it is not of ourselves. It's a gift. It is not an achievement. The gracious gift of faith is a fruit of regeneration. So if you are a believer, ask yourself, how come I'm a believer? Is it because I'm better? Is it because I'm more intelligent? No, it's because God has given me life. He's regenerated me so that I might take the faith which uh, he has given me and pray to be saved. And then verse 10, because God has done that work of recreation in Christ, I will do the good works that long ago God planned for me to do with him. So in that sense, I am cooperating with God. 
but in the initial sense of needing to be born again, I'm not. It's something he does for me. He brings me to spiritual life. He gives me faith so that I am then in a position that I can exercise that faith by putting my trust in him. And then he and I cooperate in living the life that he has planned for me. So our passage opened with us walking in trespasses and sins. We were rebellious failures in God's eyes, heading for condemnation. And it ends with us back on track, doing good, living as God intended, heading for heaven. And in between, the Holy Spirit has been at work. He takes the initiative. He has to, because we're spiritually dead. We can do nothing. And he brings us to spiritual life. He gives us faith. We then choose to exercise that faith by trusting in what Jesus has done for us, by entrusting our lives to him. Imagine that your heart stops. You're dead. You cannot resuscitate yourself. But providentially, when it happened, you were visiting a friend in the coronary care unit at the hospital. You can't do anything, but he can. The consultant happens to be there. He's on his rounds. He springs into action. He gets the recess trolley and he shocks your heart back into action. You'll need an operation, but this guy's intervention means that you'll trust him to complete what is needed to get your ticker working functionally properly again. And then you'll follow his advice and take his meds so that you can live as intended. You see, what this passage teaches us is that regeneration precedes faith and results in justification rather than we too easily think that faith leads to regeneration and then justification. It is a glorious gift of God. Salvation by grace through faith. A gift of God. Are you sure you've received it? Let us pray. There's that line in a famous hymn, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And that is the basis of salvation. And we ought to claim the gift of salvation if we haven't. We need to recognize what we were naturally like, realize that God desires to save us, Remember that he is able to do so. We reflect on what he did through Christ on the cross to enable us to be forgiven. And just as he raised Christ to life and has uh, accepted him into his presence, he can do the same for us spiritually now and physically in the life to come. And we claim that gift by faith. We take faith, we take the trust that we've had implanted in us and we exercise it on our own behalf. And this prayer might help if you've never done that. Lord Jesus, I realize that I've been adrift, that I've failed. I bring my sins and myself to you and I put my trust in Christ's death to forgive my past and his resurrection to give me eternal life the life that you've planned for me.